So one of the things that uh, I've been reminded of regularly over the last uh, little while is the importance of, as the old saying goes, to put yourself in someone else's shoes. Uh, What's behind that, of course, is the idea of understanding uh, where another person is coming from, and I think we find ourselves uh, ourselves at a place in our culture where that's important in a lot of different areas. Uh, we have very strong opinions about a lot of different things right now. We have strong opinions about COVID-19 and what should or shouldn't be done. We have strong opinions about race relations issues and what should or shouldn't be done there. We have strong political opinions in an election year and those kinds of things, and, and that's good. I mean, it's, it's, it's good to, to, to know what you believe and why. Uh, but here's when it becomes a problem, is when we become so completely engrossed in where we are that we aren't able to even understand at all where somebody else is coming from. Uh, today, why that's important is because I want us to seek to put ourselves in the shoes of the first century Hebrews who are coming out of a background that is totally foreign to all of us. They're coming out of a worship system Uh, that was centered around sacrifices and uh, external regulations and following the law and things like that that are really foreign to us. But in order for us to appreciate the way we can worship now, we need to understand to a certain degree how they worship them. It will help us appreciate more what we have. And so Hebrews chapter 9 is where we are today. And by the way, if you're following along on your Bible app. The notes in there are correct, but it says Hebrews chapter 10. Somebody pointed out uh, that was my mistake. It's supposed to say 9. We are in chapter 9 today, and we'll get uh, into chapter 10 some next week. But let's start in, in, in verse 1, and just as we read this, try to put yourself in the shoes of a Hebrew, of a Jewish background person who has a totally different system of worship that they have grown up around. Now, the first covenant had regulations for worship and also an earthly sanctuary. A tabernacle was set up. In its first room were the lampstand and the table with its consecrated bread. This was called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a room called the most holy place, which had the golden altar of incense and the gold-covered Ark of the Covenant. This Ark contained the gold jar of manna, Aaron's staff that it budded, and the stone tablets of the covenant. Above the ark were the cherubim of the glory overshadowing the atonement cover, but we cannot discuss these things in detail now. When everything had been arranged like this, the priests entered regularly into the outer room to carry on their ministry. But only the high priest entered the inner room, and that only once a year, and never without blood, which he offered for himself and for the sins the people had committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit was showing By this, that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed, as long as the first tabernacle was still functioning. This is an illustration for the present time, indicating that the gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshiper. They are only a matter of food and drink and various ceremonial washings, external regulations, applying until the time of the new order. So this gives us a little bit of a picture into what worship would have looked like. And it talks about the tabernacle. And you'll recall from our studies in weeks past, talking about how Jesus is in the real tabernacle, right? What they had before was just a shadow, just a copy of what is in heaven. And Jesus says the high priest serves in the real tabernacle. But he says, in order for us to understand, let's talk about the tabernacle and what that looked like. In fact, we have a picture of a replica. This is uh, uh, from, uh, from Israel and Timnah, 
National Park in Israel. I didn't realize that this existed. I don't know if anybody has ever been there or seen that. It would be kind of a cool thing to do. But that is a replica based on uh, how the Bible describes the tabernacle. Now, a lot of times when we think of the place of worship, maybe we think of temple, which is, you know, ornate, massive, gold-plated, all that. The tabernacle is just a tent. It was designed to be able to be set up and torn down every time the people moved. And so, but this was the place of worship. And so he describes what that place of worship is. You can see that inside that fence there, uh, there is an outer court. Any Jewish male was able to enter into the outside of that. There's the, the altar uh, where the sacrifices were, were, were given. And then that little basin there was the water, contained the water that the priests would use to purify themselves, to ceremonially wash themselves before offering sacrifices. But what is probably of more interest to us and what it describes in Hebrews 9 is what is behind that, that first little area there, that first curtain. This is what in um, chapter, or in verse 2, it describes it as the first room. And here's a picture of what was in that first room. I love the little priest guys. I don't know, they make me smile. Every time I see that, I think of the wax museum for some reason. But they've got the little characters in there doing their thing, right? Um, but inside there, you see that what it calls the lampstand or the menorah. There is the table with the consecrated bread on it. Um, and this is where the priest would go. And it says that they would go regularly into this area and they would perform you know, the, the service to the Lord. They would burn incense. They would do those kinds of things on behalf of the people. And then in verse 3, it talks about what was behind the curtain. That word curtain, we'll come back to that here in a minute. But that's so important. You see that there is a curtain there that is separating this room from the next room. Inside that next room was the Ark of the Covenant, which was a big deal. And here's a, a picture of that, the replica of the Ark of the Covenant. But of course, nobody was allowed into that inner room except the high priest. That was once a year. And there was shedding of blood was necessary in order for the priest to offer sacrifice for his own sins and then for the sins of his people. He would enter in one day of the year on the Day of Atonement. Uh, but this, this Ark of the Covenant contained three things. And, and all three of these things are a reminder of a different aspect of God's character. The first thing it says was in there was this gold jar of manna. Manna, of course, is what God used to feed his people as they were fleeing from bondage in Egypt. And God just provided this bread, this manna uh, bread-like substance. It would just form on the, the floor of the desert. And they would go out and they would take what they needed for the day and they would eat and be satisfied. And he told them, only take enough for the day because if you take too much, it'll spoil the next day, except for on the Sabbath day. They were able to take two days worth and it didn't spoil. Uh, but it was a reminder of God's provision. And so this gold jar of manna that's kept in the Ark of the Covenant is a reminder forever that God provides for his people. I wonder if somebody just needs to hear that today. That's not the main point of the message today, but somebody I think needs to hear that God provides for his people. God is a God of manna. He is a God who provides what we need. He takes care of our needs. The second thing that it says was in there is the one that maybe, I suspect, I don't know this for sure, I suspect it's the one that if we were to take a survey, less people are familiar with what was behind this next one. It says that there was a staff or a rod that, that was budded 
that was Aaron's staff that budded. The, the background behind that was the people all came together and they're like, hey, we want to be the ones to serve. We want to have some of the priestly duties. Why is it that only Aaron and this tribe of Levi, why do they get to do all this stuff and the rest of us don't? And so Moses said, okay, fine. Let's take a staff from a leader of, of each of the different tribes. Let's put them before the Lord and we'll let God decide. And at that point, I'm wondering, Moses probably doesn't know what God's going to do, but God does. And so he does something amazing, and it's recorded in Numbers 17, verse 8. It says, The next day Moses entered the tent and saw that Aaron's staff, which represented the tribe of Levi, had not only sprouted, but it budded, blossomed, and produced almonds. <laughs> I love this. This is stick. Right? It's a branch, maybe. Maybe it was, an olive. Maybe it was from an almond tree. Who knows? But, but it was a, a branch of some sort, a stick of some sort. And, and how is God going to show which one he's chosen? I mean, he could have had that one roll forward, the other ones roll backward. You know, he could have had it standing straight up when he came in. I mean, there are all kinds of things that God could have done. But what God decides to do is, let's make it produce blossoms and sprout and have almonds on it when he comes in. And, and he kept it. And that's just this incredible reminder that God is actively present, involved in the lives of his people. And that God is directing every single step. And there's no accident that this was the group, you know, that was able to, uh, to, to serve before the Lord in that way. God, God did that. God is in charge and God is involved in the lives of his people. And then the last thing, of course, was the stone tablet, uh, the two stone tablets, um, really the second version of that because the first time of the Ten Commandments when Moses came down and saw the idolatry of the people he threw them down they broke so God did it again but God had inscribed with his own finger the the Ten Commandments the law on these tablets and so this is a reminder that that God provides you know direction and and we talked about this last week in chapter 8 when we were talking about the old covenant this is the old covenant that people had do you follow the laws if you follow god's laws god will bless you if you don't follow god's laws then you'll reap the consequences and you'll experience the wrath of god and the point we made was nobody can follow those laws that's why hebrews um, goes into such detail about the new covenant that god created with the people this is a, a very personal relationship that god now has with his people but now we see in chapter 9 what was necessary in order for them to be able to enter into a relationship like that. But we, we go through all of that, um, not just to, to talk about history, as important as that is, and, and interesting to some as that is, and others maybe not so much, but to make this point, let's, let's try to understand what it was like to be involved in a system of worship where you were not allowed direct access into the presence of God. Only certain people could get close. The priest could get in that, in that second room. Only the high priest could get into the, to the most holy place where the real presence of God dwelled, or at least that's how the people viewed it. And so if you have been excluded from the presence of God and just trying to follow external regulations all these years, and now all of a sudden you're allowed into the presence of God, that gives you a different perspective. Think about it like this. Think about if there's ever been a time in your life where you've not been allowed to do something and then suddenly you are and there's a greater appreciation for it. Here's one of the things I've been thinking about because there's been so much um, being discussed lately and, and that's a good thing, by the way, rightfully so, about race relations and, and injustices of the past and things like that. There are people living today, there are African Americans living today that remember what it was like not to be allowed in certain places. They knew what it was like to go to a restaurant and be told, no, you, we don't serve your kind here. 
You aren't allowed in this part. You can go over to this room over here, or you can wait outside, and we'll get to you once we've served all the white people. They've experienced that. I've heard about it. I've read about it. I've never seen it or experienced it myself. And some of you probably have. You remember what that was like to experience that maybe from a different perspective. But for somebody that's been excluded from something, don't you think their experience, I've sat down in a restaurant and been served many, many, many times in my life, and you probably have too, and I don't think, of, I don't give a second thought to it. I don't ever think about when I walk in, are they going to say, we don't serve people like you here? That, that's, not a, that's not even on my radar at all. But if it had happened to you and it was on your radar, then when you get to actually be served, don't you think you have a different perspective on that? Probably a, a deeper appreciation because of what you've been excluded from all this time. And I think that's how it was for the people of God that understood that prior to the coming of Christ, this is the way things were. All we had were these external regulations. But here's the first main point today, and that is that external regulations aren't sufficient. That's really the point he's making in the first part of chapter 9. It it was intended, all these external regulations were intended to inspire faith in the people. That's the same way people were made right with God in the Old Testament and New Testament. It was intended to inspire faith, not by following the law. You can never do enough to be good enough for God. But the goal was, if if a sacrifice is offered, what should happen is a person would see that sacrifice being offered and think, wow, what an amazing God that I serve, that God is willing to shed the blood of that innocent animal instead of my blood, which is really, I'm the guilty one, right? And it should, because of that, inspire faith and and, 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 um, cause us to, to want to worship God more. But what happened same thing that happens today. And that is that, that we just get so hung up on just the externals, right? We get so hung up on the things that we're supposed to do. And rather than those things inspiring faith in us, what happens is it becomes all about that. And I thought about that this week. And I, I just quickly, probably in about 60 seconds, just jot, what are the external regulations that I seek to follow or that I think are important and just different things? And I jotted down just a few of them. And I wonder what you would jot down if you thought about that. What comes to mind when you think about external regulations? I thought about reading my Bible, and Bible study, prayer, tithing, singing to God and worship, fasting, scripture memory, church attendance, uh, serving, using gifts to serve others. Your list could, could keep going on and on and on, right? Those external things, they're not bad things. I mean, if I look back at my list, you know, reading my Bible, studying Bible, that's good, prayer's good, tithing's good, singing, worship, Fasting, scripture, memory, church attendance, serving, all those are good things, right? But sometimes it can become all about just doing the externals. I've admitted this before, and sadly it happened again about a week ago. I'm sitting down as, as normally uh, first thing in the morning, I'll open my Bible and, and uh, you know, spend some time reading scripture. And, and what I hope to do is to go into that time with the mindset of God, would you show me something? Would you speak to me about something? But sometimes what I do, if I'm being honest, is like, okay, it's time for me to do my Bible reading so I can get on with the rest of my day. So I open my Bible, and I'm, I'm reading, but I have absolutely no, you know, no faith combined with it. No, yeah, I'm just doing. I'm just going through the, through the motions. And this happened about a week ago. I read an entire chapter, and I realized when I finished, I have no idea what I just read. My mind was somewhere else. I was thinking about something else. And once I realized that, then I said, okay, let me go back. Let me refocus here. And go back and read it again. And 
It was amazing all that was in that chapter. I mean, there was a lot of good stuff. It wasn't like I was, you know, in Leviticus and, you know, it was all talking about inspecting boils or something like that. I mean, this was very practical kind of stuff that I'm reading and I missed it because I wasn't combining it with faith. I, I, I was off somewhere else. So it's not just, I say all that to tell that, make this point. It's not just about the externals. Right? It's about the things that, that, that should inspire faith in us. And verse 10 makes that extremely clear. It says, these were only a matter of food and drink and various ceremonial washings, external regulations applying until the time of the new order. So as we talked about last Sunday, the point was a new order was coming, a new relationship, a new covenant was coming, and God knew this all along. That's what Christ is all about. So let's read about it. Verse 11. But when Christ came as high priest of the good things that are now already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands. That is to say, not a part of this creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so they are outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God. Here's the second main idea for today, the last one, and that is that only the blood of Christ cleanses us inwardly. External regulations don't cut it, but the blood of Jesus does. And that's what Hebrews, that's the point he's trying to get across. The blood of Jesus is a whole new ballgame for us because it doesn't just give us something outwardly to do. It's inward. It's an internal change. It's a heart change change. It's something that happens to purify us on the inside. I mean, all the stuff we've been reading talks about how things can be outwardly purified. Jesus talked about this and was pretty strong in what he had to say to the Pharisees when he called them whitewashed tombs. Remember this? Matthew 23, 27 and 28. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside, you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside, you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. Man, what a strong reprimand, rebuke from Jesus to say, you're like a whitewashed tomb. You look pretty on the outside, but you're just full of death on the inside. See, the the, the blood of Jesus is about moving past just what things look like on the outside. One of my great fears is that in our culture we become experts at being whitewashed tombs. We know how to clean the outside and to look good and, and for others to see us and to you know, be respectable and whatever. And, and sometimes there's really a totally different picture of what's going on on the inside. In fact, we, we're capable, and you see this happen, and maybe this is happening among people sitting in this room or those watching right now where there's just a complete double life. You know, you have this external appearance, but inwardly is something totally different. And there's, just, there's, there's sin, there's death that nobody knows about. Jesus came to, to clean that stuff up, not just to, to make us look pretty on the outside, but to really change our hearts inwardly. As what we need is not another coat of whitewash. What we need is to be purified and cleansed by the blood of Christ. That's the only thing that can really make us clean. Verse 15, as we continue on, it says, For this reason Christ is the mediator of a new covenant, that those who are called may receive the promised... And eternal inheritance now that he has died 
as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. In the case of a will, it is necessary to prove the death of the one who made it, because a will is in force only when somebody has died. It never takes effect while the one who made it is living. This is why even the first covenant was not put into effect without blood. When Moses had proclaimed every command of the law to all the people, he took the blood of calves, together with water, scarlet, wool, and branches of hyssop, and sprinkled the scroll and all the people. He said, this is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you to keep. In the same way, he sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and everything used in its ceremonies. In fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. So even under the old covenant, when a covenant was, was made, it was sealed with blood. It was sealed with, with a sacrifice and then a sprinkling of blood. That's nothing new. But here is what is completely new. What is completely new is for the one making the covenant to seal that covenant with his own blood. Now, that's never happened before. And so God initiates this new covenant, which we said last week is not about what we can do to keep our end, but it's really about what he has done for us. He initiates this covenant that is sealed with his own blood, sprinkled with his own blood. And because of that, that enables us to have direct access to God. We talked a moment ago about that veil that separated the place where the priest ministered from the most holy place. One of the most beautiful pictures in all of Scripture, in, in my opinion, is when Jesus died on the cross and it says that veil was torn in two from top to bottom. It was God's way of, of, of showing that there was a, a separation, that there was no longer anything keeping the people from having direct access to God. And now, all of a sudden, the people that had been excluded from God's presence all these years, we have direct access through Christ, through the blood of Christ that was shed for us. You know, there's something inside of us that I think we just understand the value of someone sacrificing, shedding his blood or her blood for someone else. We understand what a heroic thing that is to do. I want you to take a, a picture, a look at this picture of a young man here. His name is Kyle Carpenter. I don't know if any of you know him or know his story. But let me read it to you. This is the official um, description of what he did while serving as a Marine. Lance Corporal Carpenter was a member of a platoon-sized coalition force comprised of two reinforced Marine squads, partnered with an Afghan National Army squad. Lance Corporal Carpenter and a fellow Marine were manning a rooftop security position on the perimeter of patrol base Dakota when the enemy initiated a daylight attack with hand grenades, one of which landed inside their sandbag position. Without hesitation and with complete disregard for his own safety, Lance Corporal Carpenter moved toward the grenade in an attempt to shield his fellow Marine from the deadly blast. When the grenade detonated, his body absorbed the brunt of the blast, severely wounding him, but saving the life of his fellow Marine. By his undaunted courage, bold fighting spirit, and unwavering devotion to duty in the face of almost certain death, Lance Corporal Carpenter reflected great credit upon himself and upheld the highest traditions of the Marine Corps and of the United States Naval Service. You see, this amazing young man did, and by the way, if you ask him, and could ask others, it would say they would all do the same thing. He just said, I, was just, I just did what I was trained to do. He 
sacrificed himself for the good of somebody else. Now, thankfully, he actually survived. Uh, he lost one of his eyes um, and went through a very painful rehab process and, of course, still, you know, he'll, ne he'll never be normal uh, the way we would understand it. He'll live with pain and other things and disabilities the rest of his life that are going to be difficult for him to manage, but, but he did live. But when you hear a story like that, what does that do to you? And for me, I mean, it gives me chills every time. I'm like, that, that's amazing. I, there's something honorable around, about that, right? There's something just amazing to think someone would willingly give up his life for the good of somebody else. I wonder what that other Marine whose life was saved, I wonder what he thinks about every day when he wakes up. And I can't help but to think that some where in his mind he's thinking about the sacrifice that was made for him. He's thinking about what was done to save his life, and I suspect that he has a desire to make his life count. Knowing that he's been given this opportunity, there's gratitude and there's a sense of, of man, I, I really want to make the most of this. I want to give myself so that, that I am able to make a difference. He was given an opportunity, a new shot at life. And Jesus, when he gave his life for us, he gave us a new opportunity and a new shot at life too. In verse 15, it talks about those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. See, Jesus gave up his life not just to, to save us now, from the painful things of this world and from the things that are coming after us, Jesus gave up his life to save us from the consequences of sin, to save us from hell, to save us from an eternity separated from God. And through Christ and his sacrifice and what he has done for us, we can have this promised eternal inheritance. And you know when you know that you have that, there's just a sense of, of peace. There's, there's a... You know, when you go through difficult times, there's, there's just a different way of approaching that. Uh, a lot of you may know that our family uh, just got back last night from Odessa, where my wife's grandmother lived her entire life and passed away uh, last week. We buried her on Friday. And she was about, I think she was 93, either 93 or 94, and lived a, a full life. And uh, toward the end of her life, she just started to say, I'm tired, I'm ready to go home. And she would just say that, I'm ready to go home. And so, you know, it's always sad when you lose a loved one, but it's different when it's somebody that says, I'm, I'm just ready to go home. You know, I, I know that this is not my home here. And she was ready. And so uh, there, there's, there's incredible peace that comes with that. And I, I share that story just to, to, to ask you this question. Do you have that same sense of security, that same sense of confidence in your life to know where your home really is. This, this isn't our home. We were created for something more. We were created for eternity. Our sin separates us from God. There is a veil. There is a wall separating us from God. But Christ came and jumped on that grenade for us. He gave his life for us and shed his blood for us so that we can be made clean in God's eyes. 
See, it's not about following external regulations. It's not about trying to be good enough. It's all about putting our trust in Jesus and what He has done, the sacrifice that He has made on our behalf. So I want to encourage you to take that step today if you haven't already. To give your heart and your life to Christ, whether you're here in person with us, whether you're following along with us online. That's the most important step that any of us could take is a step to say, yes, I want to give my heart to Jesus. I want to respond to this act, this incredible act of bravery and sacrifice. He gave his life for me. And as a result, I want to give myself to him and live with all my heart for him.